This is all gold. It's all testing. Do yeah. you want to tell your joke again? No. I think I told you my joke ages back, but you might have forgotten it. Hit me. You know Orion's belt? Yes. Waste of space. Oh, yeah. Very good. Yeah. Sorry. I Waste just... of an eye. Yeah. Crap joke. Three stars. Well, oh, my God. There's two jokes in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's really good. I just have to say that's not my joke. No, no. I could tell. I don't want to... I didn't refer to anything pop culture that I'm, I don't understand. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Spend a penny over here as Daniel. Um, I'll be in the John. Is that be? <laughs> the John. That's vulgar, isn't it? I don't care for that. So, would you like to read some of our letters, Daniel? Would I? This is a letter email from Mary Graham. A letter email. Yeah. I don't know if it's Graham or Graham, because I know she's American. In America, I'm going to guess it's Graham instead of Graham. Hi, Abby and Daniel. On your Tale of Two Cities episode, you read a letter from Roddy, who said her co-worker introduced her to the pod. I am that co-worker. We work at a public library, so it's normal for us to pop up at our co-workers' desks and subject them to literary analysis and puns. Very quietly, I hope. Frankly, yeah, that's probably in the job description. We had our co-worker resident punster Jeff in stitches with Abby's, a well-placed cough indicating tuberculosis. Call that conspicuous consumption line from another episode. See, I don't like that. Why aren't they laughing at my jokes? Do you make jokes? I just feel like I have a joke. <laughs> oh, oh, I can't. You're so pathetic and sickly today. Um, I just want to wrap you in a blanket and give you a cup of yeah, milk smother tea. me, yeah. <laughs> I just want to wrap you in a blanket with a cockerel, a monkey, and a poisonous snake <laughs> and throw you in the timer. So, if you would like to hear Roddy, Jeff, and me subjecting not just our co-workers, but the general public to media analysis and puns, we have a podcast at our library called A Little Too Quiet. The best part of working at a library is never shutting up about the media... You love. You're supposed to be a little too quiet. I bet you like books. That's the media, right? <laughs> Thereby lovingly pressuring all your friends slash co-workers slash patrons into engaging with it as well. Who's the patron? Like a bishop or something. Uh, <laughs> Medici. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for all you do. You've got fans in the library workers slash former English majors of a small library in the Midwest in US. That's my bucket list ticked off. Thank you very much, Mary Graham. Right. Here's another email letter from uh, someone called Pete. Just peep. Hi, both. Love the podcast. I especially enjoy Daniel's fascination with the mundane and the trivial. Daniel wrote this, I guarantee yeah. you. Putting the name Pete on there like it's going to throw me off. I, I can tell. I am... Um, nothing I like is mundane or trivial. It's all very important, isn't it? For this reason, I wondered if you'd considered any H.G. Wells. War of the Worlds has a great mix of pedantic Edwardian journalism and slimy Martian horror, which I think would lend itself well to your unique brand of humour. We've talked about H.G. Wells for quite a long time. We're, we would probably lead with either The Time Machine or The Island of Dr. Moreau. Well, I'd way rather do War of the Worlds. Would you? Yeah. Well, okay, clearly it's still up in the air, but yes, we have... I think every season we have put on H.G. Wells and then taken it off and replaced it with something else. So if we do season five... Always the bridesmaid. 
Mr. Wells. Alternatively, I'd love to hear your take on an E.M. Forster novel. Oh, don't Howard's End slash A Room with a View. I've only read one Ian Forster novel. It was called Howard's End. and uh, He has never shut up about this. I really like Not it. once yeah. in six Maybe years. Maybe I should read some other books by that guy. Anyway, the queer readings and himbos won't be hard to find. Thanks for all the laughter. Pete. So, Daniel, what is our text today? Alors, par la bonne by the good grace of Providence, we are at the civilized center of Europe. The capital of good taste, of gentility and courteousness. It's the kingdom of France. By grace of God, the king is His Majesty Louis XV, known as the well-beloved by his faithful subjects. However, it must be said that a new phenomenon is pestering this terrestrial paradise, which calls itself enlightenment. But sacrilegious ideas and subversive words cannot influence France. The House of Bourbon will reign over this sacred land forever. All will go for the best, as we learn in today's text, Voltaire's Candide, 1759. You show off. You fancy pants. People will know that that was... uh, I'm sure there's plenty of errors in that. But it was 18th century French, which is quite different to the modern French. That's why well, any error that people notice is... <laughs> that you're that good mm. that you're working back in yeah, the error. Exactly. I was very impressed by that. So it goes without saying, we are about to spoil this book for you. In terms of what we're going to be talking about today, there's a lot of sex stuff in this. There's a lot of anti-Semitism, racism, cannibalism, a lot of sexual assault or being sold into sex work general war, torture, hanging, slavery, colonialism, bestiality, and STDs. It's pretty much everything, isn't it? Could you do some background, please? Bien sûr. Uh, (laughs) I'll stop now. François-Marie Arouet, also known as Voltaire. His middle name's Marie. In France, that's fine. They do that all the time. And he was an 18th century French writer and wit, and he's sort of like the poster boy of Enlightenment thought. What does that mean? It means he spoke out in favour of civil liberties and scientific rationalism, and he wrote various satires and polemics that attacked feudal privilege, religion, and intolerance. This may not surprise you, but his works repeatedly got him in hot water with the French absolute monarchy, with the Catholic Church, and with intolerant people everywhere. (laughs) Lord love him. And this wasn't really helped by his tendency to court controversy wherever he went. So he repeatedly just implicated himself in various scandals of various kinds, sexual and otherwise, you know, the bad kind of scandal, uh, and celebrity feuds and stuff. So he was, oh, a, he was this, a character. This guy would be all over Twitter. Yes, he would, He'd be yeah. getting cancelled every other week. But then also, like, he'd have a lot of followers. Yeezy. He's the Yeezy. What's that? Kanye. Okay. <laughs> like the hero of Candide, Voltaire led a pretty eventful life. So as a young man, he made a massive fortune by rigging the lottery. <laughs> Everyone in the 18th century was making money off the lottery, weren't they? Casablanca? Not Casablanca. Casanova. Casablanca's a film. (laughs) And a town. That's right, I forgot Casanova did that. Casanova sold the lottery, Voltaire won the lottery. He cheated it though. Yeah, so he had the highs, but he also had the lows. Bloody low lows. He did time in the Bastille after writing a libelous political satire. Yeah, he also, he travelled around a lot. He lived in the Netherlands for a time, you know, on and off. Because, you know, a lot of French writers during the 18th century had to publish in the Netherlands to avoid censorship. In the 1720s, he was exiled to Britain, where he met, among others, Alexander Pope, Jonathan Swift, and Sarah Churchill, who is Rachel Weiss in The Favourite. 
you know, that character. Who could forget that character? Well, exactly, yeah. yeah and it's, it's another author after a Dorian Gray episode, another name droppy. Yes, story. they're very similar, yeah, I think, Wilde and Voltaire. After returning to France, Voltaire was banned from Paris, so instead he shacked up with the married scientist and aristocrat Emilie du Châtelet. Before, you know, they did all these experiments together in their, in their palace, and then... Sexual experiments? Probably. All, all the kinds. And then, and then he kind of moved on from her to have an affair with his own niece. So he obviously met Jonathan Swift and thought, you know, I'll, I'll see you and raise you. I, Daniel, are my uncles just not hot? What is happening? Why is every uncle shacking up with his niece? I mean, maybe the boot's on the other foot. I'm the ugly niece! <laughs> All the, oh, God! So, in the 1740s, he went to live in Prussia after being invited by his pen pal who lived there who was the king, Frederick the Great. How do you set that up? Is there like a list you sign up for like when you're in the fourth grade? Yeah, uh, and Voltaire had long idealized him as an enlightened despot. Also, when the, you know they were living together in Berlin, he may have had a sexual relationship with him. Frederick the Great was gay, wasn't he? And then they fell out, he had to leave Prussia. In the 1750s, he moved to Geneva and Jean-Jacques Rousseau was there and uh, they fell out a lot and you know, he just cramped Rousseau's style. Whose style did this guy not cramp? He's a walking Charlie horse, come on. What's that? He shortly thereafter settled to, on an Alpine estate where he lived just as this kind of all-round European celebrity and he died in 1778, so I think he had a pretty exciting life. Candide is a picaresque satirical novella. Could you tell us what the picaresque is, please? And thank you. It's a kind of early novelistic form that's very episodic and kind of follows the highs and lows of a, well, originally of a rogue, which is what Picaro means. It came from 17th century Spain, but became very popular in Europe in the 18th century. And it doesn't have necessarily a super cohesive plot. It's more just like, hey, let's follow this yeah. guy on Then this happened, then that happened, then yeah. this happened, yeah. Don Quixote is a good example of the picaresque. Yes. And Voltaire was inspired to write the book because of all these like, awful events during the period. Wars, slavery, there was an earthquake in 1755 that completely leveled Lisbon. So all this awful stuff was happening. But at the same time, Godfrey Leibniz's optimism, this kind of new sort of philosophy where you say that everything is for the best in the world, was very popular. So he was kind of attacking that, saying like, how could you be so stupid as to think everything's great? It's clearly shit. That's the message of the book. It's a lot clearer than in Gulliver's Travels. Condit says, I'll see, you, I'll see you, Gulliver's Travels, and I'll raise you something that's a lot more basic and easy to understand, rather than kind of something that leaves me feeling all funny and confused. <laughs> you put a little frowny face. Yeah. Did it give you a hurdy tum? Gulliver's Travels? Yeah. I was thinking more about you and your, your feelings. Oh, was this me? Is the frowny face me? Yeah. Yeah, that is how I felt. Yeah. So this is a very frantic text. A lot happens in a really short amount of time. Don't get, you know, nervous if you have like lost where we are a little bit just go with it that's kind of the point of the text we'll catch you up as best as we can it doesn't really matter that much the plot is not that important so we open in westphalia a province of western germany and we're in the castle of the baron thundertentronk here's the family situation the baron has a son whose name we never find out. In the operetta version, the son's name is Maximilian, but uh, we just never figure it out in this book. The Baron also has a beautiful daughter named Cunegonde, 
and a bastard nephew named Candide, who is the sweetest, most optimistic little guy ever. And the children are all taught by the philosopher, Dr. Pangloss, which is Greek for all tongue. He gives instruction in metaphysico theologo cosmo negology. Sure. I'm sad that that was in my mouth. Yes, Pangloss. There's all the tongue. <laughs> Pangloss is very much of that philosopher Leibniz's persuasion. He thinks that God is just and logical and rational, and therefore this is the best of all possible worlds. I think we're going to need a little ding. Yes, please. Every time. Also, Leibniz. Yeah, and the name's Heuschel Leibniz. <laughs> it's Leibniz, isn't it? Is it? What did I say? Leibniz. Is that's, it? Like a, that's like how Americans pronounce. I ran into uh, Gottfried Leibniz. I can't even do it now. <laughs> hey, I ran into uh, Gottfried Leibniz in um, Tribeca. And, uh... <laughs> so yeah, he thinks this is the best of all possible worlds, and the Baron's castle was the most magnificent of all castles, and Cunegonde is the best of all possible baronesses, you know, on and on and on. So Candide, our hero, you know, the, the sort of bastard cousin, he has a bit of a crush on Cunegonde, and she has a bit of a crush on him. One day, Cunegonde takes a walk out on the grounds, and she discovers Dr. Pangloss giving a quote-unquote lecture to a serving wench, Paquette, in the bushes. Cunegonde becomes very sort of innocently horny. I think she kind of <laughs> doesn't really know what she's seeing. Quote, as Miss Cunegonde had a natural disposition toward the sciences, she observed with the utmost attention the experiments which were repeated before her eyes. She perfectly well understood the force of the doctor's reasoning upon Ooh. cause and effects. She returned home greatly flurried, quite pensive, and filled with a desire of knowledge. Good pause. Yeah. <laughs> So later, Cunegonde runs into Candide, and she gives him the old handkerchief-dropping treatment, and when he picks it up for her, she kisses him, and that leads to some heavy petting. I'm guessing, like, second base, rounding to third? What do you think? How far do they get? Um, what are the bases? Okay, everybody, we gotta go off mic so I can once again explain to Daniel what sex is. <laughs> Yeah, cricket, you, you just run back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> that says a lot about the British sexual psyche. So while they're busy interfering with each other, the Baron, her father, walks in. He's like, what? My daughter can only get with upper class D. So he instantly kicks Candide out of the castle, nephew or no. But it's probably for the best. Candide, thus cast out of the terrestrial paradise, quote unquote, Wanders aimlessly and dejectedly around, having to sleep in the open air and in doorways. I said that this is a Lou Ferrigno-style hitchhiking, but I don't think anyone born after, like, 1983 is going to get that reference. No, I don't know what that means. So, he soon gets noticed by two men in blue, who, remarking that Candide must be of the required height, press him into the army of the Bulgars. I need to say that the required height is five foot five, and this is very central to my casting. Ooh, okay, thank you. I also had a really bad prefab, and I don't know if this is anything. I wrote, Please, share. This I, is a salon type environment where people can just share witticisms. I wrote, baby's first adventure, he's a swash gosh bagosh buckler. Is I, that I anything? I don't understand that. Osh gosh bagosh, they do baby clothes. Right. Don't, don't know. People write in, was that funny or is this nothing? 
I have I have a whole stand-up special you might be interested in. It's called Obscure Brand Puns Woodenly Delivered, and it's out this June on Netflix. So yeah, the Bulgars, that means the Prussians, doesn't it? Let's have the little Voltaireism, and we've got a witticism from Voltaire about Prussia. Most states have an army, but in the case of Prussia, the army has a state. <laughs> no. uh, I wish we wouldn't lock eyes when we do that. It makes me so uncomfortable. So, shock horror, the army is not nice. Candide keeps getting beaten and told what to do. So, being the himbo to end all himbos, he decides to go for a walk very, very far away from the army, but he's soon caught. Aw, his Ferdinand the Bull pacifist ass just wants to smell the flowers. Do you know Ferdinand the Bull? No. Candide is given a choice. Do you want to get shot for desertion or do you want to run the gauntlet? What is running the gauntlet, you might ask? It's getting beaten successively by every man in the regiment. He's got to do that 36 times. He opts for the latter, running the gauntlet, and after three runs, he's already very badly torn up and he's, it looks like he's going to die. This is the first instance where they talk about somebody having ass trouble. Didn't they, notice that. They specifically talk about, in my translation anyway, that his ass has no skin left on it. Let's see. Let's see okay. the original. I want everyone to know that Daniel is reading this in the original French. Naturellement. Oh yeah. Cela lui compose 4000 coups de baguette. Qui depuis la nuque du cou jusqu'au cul. So, from the nape of his neck to his ass, mm-hmm. he had his skin and his nerves exposed. It's a bum there, heavy book. It's a bum centric book. The King of the Bulgars uh, passes by at this moment, and we're told he sympathizes that Candide must be, quote, a young metaphysician, totally ignorant of worldly things. So he pardons him. So, after some unpleasant sounding surgical treatment, Candide is judged to have enough skin left to rejoin his comrades as they go into battle against the Avars. I have a prefab here and I said, I bet he's going to fight really hard. He's got skin in the game. Uh, wow, you really uh, it's, transformed I'm, oh the God. best of all possible jokes. <laughs> I'm so sorry you have to sit across from this That's <laughs> fine. Why does Voltaire change the name of Prussia and whoever the Avars are meant to be to the Bulgars and the Avars. I was wondering that myself. I mean, I, I sort of came up roughly with what you had, which is enough to make it sort of sound allegorical. This is kind of a dream world, I think. Yeah, so he does, like, it's it's a real blend of, like, completely fictional or, like, super-duper old terms for national ethnic groups. Yeah, but then, yeah, it feels like a satire. It also feels like a criticism of Prussia to say that it's barbarian, because the Bulgars and the Avars are, like, a kind of yeah. quote-unquote barbarian tribe. I'm sure, I'm sure it's a combination of yeah. all those things whatever next a battle it's a real thing of beauty the cannons the muskets the bayonets they all constitute quote unquote sufficient reason to rid 30,000 or so ruffians from the face of this the best of all possible worlds vowing to be reunited with Cunegonde he escapes he kind of climbs over loads of piles of dead bodies and passes through a bunch of Avar villages that have been ravaged by Bulgars and then Bulgar villages that have similarly, you know, the same treatment from the Avars. There's lots of charred corpses and guts and brains and severed limbs everywhere. And then he ends up in Holland. <gasps> yeah. Sorry, just the Dutch. He's rescued by an Anabaptist called Jacques. Candide feels that this one act of kindness confirms all the teachings of Master Pangloss and that all is really for the best in the world. Then he goes for a walk where he encounters a beggar, quote, covered with pustules, who has dead eyes, a rotting nose, and a deformed mouth, who periodically coughs out his remaining black teeth. Candide meets this beggar. Turns out it's Dr. Pangloss, Whoa. his old teacher. Pause. What is the time? 
time scale on this thing because I assumed it like is weird, isn't it? Yeah. Like I thought a week yeah, had yeah, passed, yeah. but I'm gonna guess as we're gonna find out. I think years have happened. I know. Yeah. I think it doesn't by. matter, does it? Because like you say, it's like a dream world. Yeah. Time doesn't really matter in this. So Candide's like, oh, my old master Pangloss, you know, how is everyone back at home? How is Mademoiselle Cunegonde doing? Dead. What? Everyone's dead. But how did she die, Candide asks. She was, okay, guys, brace yourself for this. She was raped to death by Bulgar soldiers who then murdered everyone else and tore the whole castle down. Let me know if you see a comedic window anytime soon, because I need to defenestrate myself out it. Jesus. <laughs> and what happened to you, Dr. Pangloss? What in the Voldemort happened to your nose? Love, said Dr. <laughs> Pangloss. Paquette, the hot serving wench that he was tussling with in the bushes, well, in her arms I tasted the pleasures of paradise, which produced these hell torments with which you see me devoured. Syphilis, baby! Oh. One of Christopher Columbus's dudes must have picked up syphilis in the New World, and it spread all the way here till today, and you know, and somebody gave it to Paquette, and Paquette gave it to me. Isn't that great? Because only in the best of all possible worlds could adventurers bring back chocolate and spices and dyes to compensate for the horrible diseases they also pick up. Yeah. Candide takes Pangloss under his wing. He helps Pangloss get his, you know, the old sif treated so he won't die. And he doesn't. Pangloss only loses an eye and an ear. Hooray! Jacques, the Anabaptist who's been helping them out, he has to go to Lisbon on business. So he's like, you know what, Candide, Pangloss, I'm going to take you with me. And then they sail directly into a horrible storm, and everyone on board drowns except for Candide and Pangloss, who wash up on the coast of Lisbon. Poor Jacques the Anabaptist died. But, fret not, says Pangloss, the Bay of Lisbon was created expressly so that Jacques would drown in it. It's all for the best! You know, they wash up on the shore, they do the full, like, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, Kiss in the Sand treatment. As soon as they walk into the city, there's a giant earthquake. So this earthquake flattens the entire city and it sets what's left of it on fire. And poor Candide isn't injured by a falling stone as a building collapses. So Candide starts freaking out about just how bad their luck is. But Pangloss is like, no, no, my son, don't worry. He starts philosophizing. It's all for the best in this best of all possible worlds. While they're discussing this, they're overheard by this sort of shady dude in black. He comes up and he's like, Hey, f***o. Scuttlebutt from across the bar says you're questioning original sin. So, buddy, if you think everything's for the best, then you're telling me that God wanted Adam and Eve to disobey him and be banished from the Garden of Eden? How is humanity supposed to be punished for its sins if God makes everything happen for the best? Good point. <laughs> he and Pangloss get into a bit of a debate, which is a really bad life choice because the man in black happens to be part of the Spanish Inquisition. This quickly turns into an episode of Cops, they slap some cuffs on him, and in the words of the musical, Pangloss and Candide are arrested for being pernicious lambs of Satan. Oh dear. They've been arrested for heresy, and we just had that big earthquake. And how best should the Portuguese authorities deal with such a catastrophe? You know what with a big auto de fe. Could you tell us what an auto de fe is? Gladly. It's when you have a big public sort of mass execution burning of heretics. It's sort of like the Spanish Inquisition's version of like a county field days. You got the tractor pull, ling off of limbs. Yeah. You got punkin' chunkin', but 
the, the pumpkins are people's heads. I, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> this, I feel like I'm really out of touch in this episode for some you've reason. Ne- you've never been to a ca- Have you ever been to a county fair? No. Why would I have? I'm trying, Daniel. You're always I, telling me to improvise, no, and this yeah. is the shit I give yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're having the auto dafe. The reasoning behind this is that this disaster must have been caused by a bit of a surfeit of sinners, so let's round them up and publicly burn them. Candide and Pongloss... Pongloss? Candide and Pangloss are among the number of sinners thus recruited. While many of their fellow auto defaees are burned, Pangloss is hanged. Candide, he he only is in trouble for having approvingly listened to, to Pangloss, so he's just whipped and then absolved. So that's pretty good, isn't it? It's quite nice. How does he have any ass skin left to be whipped? He's got a big ass. <laughs> um, <laughs> I just love the idea of just this whole time Candide like the subtext is he just has this massive like this huge bubble butt yeah all the way through the book he's got an absolute dump truck ass you don't know this but it's like a JK Rowling saying like actually Dumbledore is gay (laughs) all the way through Candide had a really big bum but you don't know about that right so he's just been whipped punishment fulfilled I guess so he sort of crawls off yeah his mentor killed so things aren't going quite badly. An old woman, however, beckons to him and escorts him to a grand house. He, uh, he's introduced to a finely dressed, bejeweled woman. Who is uh, it? Well, Cunigond. What intarnation? <gasps> Reincarnation. <laughs> but she was ravished to death by vulgar soldiers. Vulgar How- wheat, yeah. <laughs> uh, well... Kunigana's like, yeah, so it turns out I'm actually fine. The rest of the family is dead, though. And then we get Kunigonda's story about what happened. In the sacking of her family's castle, she was badly injured, but rescued by a hot six-foot-tall Bulgarian soldier. And I'm convinced she threw that detail in there to make Candide jealous. Ooh, a whole seven inches taller than Candide, then. That would make you jealous, wouldn't it? Yes. Carry on. Unless you're already at six foot, because... If then a guy is six seven, I'm like, no, that's a freak. Just, that's yeah. just. Was yeah. <laughs> that said it? Are you just saying that purely because you're six feet tall? We have a height limit on this podcast. If you're listening to this and you're over six foot four, we don't turn, want you. Turn it off, please. No, thank you. Or sit down. She talks about this. Uh, her bulgar soldier. He was handsome and had a white, soft skin, but he was very stupid and knew nothing of philosophy. <laughs> and I was wondering if the philosophy she was referring to was the philosophy of Pangloss, yeah, i.e. sex. Oh, yeah. I was wondering if that was a little, like, a double meaning of, like, he's stupid, but also he's kind of a lousy lay. But they call it experimental physics, don't they? Yeah, but maybe. Still, no, that, I like oh. that. That's quite funny. But it's the fact that, you know, Pangloss is giving a quote-unquote lecture yeah, and, you know, yeah, yeah. okay. So eventually the Bulgar soldier gets tired of Kunigonda and he sells her to a Jewish man, Don Izakar. So this house is where Don Izakar has stashed her away. But there's a complication. Don Izakar is not her only boyfriend. <laughs> Kunigonda went to mass recently and the Grand Inquisitor saw her and he got all very like Tex Avery hearts for eyes about it. So the Inquisitor, you know, getting all googly eyes and other googly body parts over Kunigonda, he goes up to Don Izakar and he's like, you're only a Jewish person. You got to sell Kunigonda to me. Don Izakar goes, oh man, not my shiksa. And he refuses to do it because he's in love with Kunigonda. So the two men work out a bargain. They will timeshare her <laughs> vagina. 
and they've been doing this for six months, you know, one every other night. In any case, the Inquisitor once took Cunegonde on a date to go see people tortured. He's like, hey, babe, we're going to the auto de fe tonight. And it's only when they're sitting in the splash zone that she sees <laughs> that she sees Candide. And so she's like, she has her faithful attendant, her lady's maid, who's just known in this book as the old lady. La vieille. It's just that. She has her go rescue Candide after he's, you know, let off by the Inquisition. It's at this point in the night in the house of Twinkly Schmoop where Candide and Cunegonde are all reunited and purring at each other like fucking turtle doves or whatever. When who should come in? Don Issachar. It's his night with Cunegonde. He gets furious seeing another man sidling up to Cunegonde's business, so he draws his sword on Candide. And they wrestle for a minute, Candide manages to get the sword away, and he stabs Don Issachar killing him. <gasps> they all panic, wondering what they're going to do with the murdered man, when who would show up but the Grand Inquisitor, who's a little confused and thinks it's his night with Cunegonde. And he walks in like that gif of Donald Glover on Community, where he goes to grab a pizza and comes back and everything's on fire. So, while the Grand Inquisitor is frozen in shock, Candide reacts automatically, grabs the sword, and stabs the Grand Inquisitor too. And now they have two bodies. He killed. He killed as hard as my jokes, Daniel. Wow. <laughs> the old lady turns into sort of a Winston Wolf-style fixer, and she's like, right, I got this. I've waited my whole life for this sort of shit. Grab their gold, get Cunegonde's jewels, we got some horses in the stable, we'll be gone before dawn. And they do. They manage to escape before the authorities discover the bodies. On the way, they get robbed. So our, our trio are left penniless in the middle of nowhere and being hunted by the Inquisition for this murder. The old lady says that she should sell one of the horses, and she can ride on the back of Cunegonde's horse with her. It'll be painful, though. The old lady only has one buttock. <gasps> Why? Voltaire doesn't get into it here. Ugh. Cliffhanger. Yeah, leave him wanting more, yeah. Candide has to find work because they've obviously been robbed. So, citing his military experience, he joins this army that's, um, you know, preparing to board some ships. I'm sorry, his military experience of deserting. <laughs> Running away yeah. however fast he can. Yeah, this army's going to Paraguay where they're going to suppress a native uprising. Can you imagine hiring Candide as your muscle? Yeah, like that guy's going to give someone a knuckle sandwich. They're all on the boat and they're discussing their plight. Candide is like, well, the new world will be the best of all possible worlds that Pangloss described long bloody last and Cunegonde is like I'm not so sure and the old woman's like what stop moaning you haven't experienced such misfortunes as mine Cunegonde's like well ma'am if you've been raped by two bulgars had your belly sliced open twice had two castles demolished seen two sets of parents murdered seen two of your lovers whipped at an auto de fe I hardly think you can compare your suffering to mine well it's funny you should say that so the old woman tells her tale I haven't always been a wizened old codger, and I've had a far greater social fall than you. I am the daughter of Pope Urban X. Fictional Pope, apparently. <laughs> I was once the most beautiful woman around and lived in total luxury. Yeah, it's easy to say that. You know, uh, Daniel, did you know that I was once the most beautiful woman? Me it too. <laughs> you were? My breast was white, firm, and form like that of Venus of Medici. So pretty standard boob shape is what you're telling me, ma'am. What? You want them to be like dodecahedrons or something. Concave. Give me some variety. What's standout-ish about this, I ask you? Maybe you'll criticize the next bit. My eyebrows were as black as jet. Bobby. Don't care for that. Oh. Okay, Lily Collins. My eyes darted flames and eclipsed the luster of the stars. Come on, that's pretty good. 
Oh, Bella Hadid is going to be so jealous. My maids, when they dressed and undressed me, used to fall into an ecstasy, whether viewing me from in front or behind. Queer reading, hooray! I think so. Yeah. Is Donisica and the Inquisitor and the Kunigans polycule? Is that a queer reading? Ooh. You know what? I we need more queer readings in this. I'll go for it. Hooray! Interfaith queer reading. This book is so progressive. <laughs> Interfaith. <laughs> so. How did she end up in her present state then? The old woman and her mother, she was a young woman then, but she's called the old woman as we discussed. She and her mother took a boat to another of their many estates, but en route, they were captured by Barbary Corsairs. Your ancestors? The very same. She was raped by the Corsair captain before they arrived in Morocco. When they get there, it's bathed in the blood of endless civil wars. She goes through all these civil wars. You know, she stumbles basically out of like this battle, battle faints. And she wakes up to find this huge guy dry humping her. And he says, oh, what a misfortune to be a eunuch. That's hilarious. Sort of. Very long story short, the eunuch who can't sex her up no matter how hard he tries, eventually sells her on. She, over time, becomes part of a harem. And, you know, the, the guy who owns the harem, he ends up in a war. So their fortress gets under siege. And after a long time, you know, under siege to ward off starvation, they decide to take all of the the wives of the harem and to cut off and eat a single buttock from each of them to prevent starvation. So now we found out how she lost her ass. Why is this book so obsessed with people losing chunks of their asses? I suppose it's that kind of cartoon humor, isn't it, that you can... Do that hurt without dying. She works all these menial jobs all across Europe over the years since, and then that's how she ended up working for Don Issachar. And Kunigonda backs down from their pissing contest because game recognizes game. They've been through the wars, haven't they? Yeah, but the old lady's been through the wars a lot longer, so yeah, she's got more. Um, also less in the <laughs> bottom department. She could get fillers or whatever the bomb version. Of, yeah. Uh, oh my God, she could get the Brazilian butt lift. Yes. And they go to Brazil later. Check you out. Knowing what a Brazilian butt lift is, Daniel Kardashian Jenkins Smith. I can't wait till you're like, you hit 50 and you have a really bad midlife crisis. And the next time I see you, you're like all plastic surgeried. I want to see you with your huge lip fillers and I want to watch you try to eat soup. Okay. Can you get butt fillers? In your lips? Kiss ass. (laughs) (laughs) They've arrived in South America. Hooray! And there they meet the governor, Don Fernando, who's a lusty... Whoa, that's not his full name. Come on, give us his full name. Don Fernando de Barra y Fegora y Mazarenes y Lampurdos y Sousa. It doesn't really matter what his full name is. The point is, there was something in the air that night. The stars were bright. He takes a look at Cunagonda who's, you know, the total babe, and he immediately proposes marriage. Candide, who isn't smart enough to play stupid, angrily says, um, I'm engaged to Miss Cunagonda. <laughs> the governor's like, oh, is that right? And he orders Candide to take his army and run drills far, far away. As soon as Cunagonda is alone, he is- insists again on marrying her. Kunigana consults with the old lady, and she's like, what do I do? His mustache keeps winking at me. I don't think I can put this guy off for very long. 
And the old lady's like, listen, it's not like you've ever been faithful to Candide. You boinked your hot bulger. You boinked Don Issachar. You boinked the Grand Inquisitor. This dude's super rich. Just my advice, but uh, I think you should point your heels to Jesus and think of Jimmy Choo's. <laughs> Cunegonde isn't convinced, but then they find out that they've been followed all the way to South America by the people investigating the Grand Inquisitor's death. <gasps> So they might get arrested and executed for the murder. So Kunigonda needs the governor's protection and Candide needs to get away fast. And Kunigonda's just like, all right, wedding bells, baby. Candide picks up a Man Friday character, Robinson Crusoe reference, and his name is Kakambo. And he's half indigenous, half European. Candide mopes about having to leave Cunegonde again, but Kakando's like, buck up, dummy. Let's go join our forces with the Jesuits in Paraguay, and we'll help them in their missionary work. Through violence! <laughs> they traverse through the terrain, whatever, blah, blah, blah. They get to the Jesuits. They meet up with a Jesuit monk, who's initially quite suspicious of Candide, until they discover they're both German. Where were you born? Westphalia. Oh my god, me too! Where in Westphalia? At Castle Thunderten Trunk. Oh my god, me too! You're never gonna believe this, but it's Kunagonda's brother, who is not named Maximilian in the book, but we don't have anything else to call him. Kunigonda's brother? Daniel! Sorry. So, like Kunagonda, he was somehow also less murdered by the Bulgars than previously suspected. And oh, wouldn't Dr. Pangloss be delighted to see this? It truly is the best of all possible worlds. Uh. And guess what? Your sister Kunigonda is alive and well too. And as soon as I get back to her, we shall be married! In the words of Stephen Toast, the monk goes, Well, you can fuck that sky high! Candide is just a bastard cousin, and Kunigonda is a high-ranking lady. I just love that everyone in this book constantly dunks Candide like he's a goddamn Oreo. Surely it should be a Leibniz. <laughs> That's a biscuit. Is a it? chocolate Leibniz. Oh, a chocolate Leibniz. Mm. So the brother takes out his sword, and he bitch slaps Candide across the face with it, which is a find the phallus if I've ever heard one. Ooh. So Candide takes out his sword and runs the brother through, killing him. A palpable hit. <laughs> Candide and Cacambo escape Jesuit territory. Then they ride into the wilderness. Then they encounter some naked women Ooh. being pursued by monkeys. Oh no! Yeah. And let's not forget, the monkeys are biting the women on the ass. Can oh. we have an ass klaxon in here, please? <laughs> so... Candide shoots the monkeys dead, and he's like, oh yeah, helping these women will surely make amends for my previous murders. He notices actually that the two women are crying over the dead monkeys. Cacambo's like, nice job, Candide, you just killed their lovers. So... Uh, I'm sorry, were we witnessing the early stages of a human monkey orgy? Yes, it was all just foreplay. But he's still a bit like, that's weird. And Kakambo's like, well, what of it? You think it's strange that in some countries, monkeys can attain the affections of ladies. They are one quarter human, like I'm a quarter Spanish. Eh. Yeah, well, let's have a bit of Voltarianism here. He thought that all the different races were different species with separate origins. That's racism 101, isn't it? I think <laughs> if you think that people are different, different races are different species. But for him, it was like a radical thing because he said that that proved that the Adam and Eve myth was wrong. Yeah, I have a hard time with Voltaire's racism because he is racist, 
but he's also so equally horrible to everyone. He's so equal opportunity hateful. It kind of doesn't stick. Name a time when a cis white man has been made fun of in this book. Really? I would venture to suggest every single one? Especially because we're going to get to a bit where he's very, very clear about how cruel and disgusting imperialism is. So it's weird to have him have like these racist and anti-Semitic bits and then also be like really progressive. And those two things like obviously can coexist. It's just... It's kind of weird. Well, he's kind of like, all the races are different, but they're all fine. He's kind of like that. Or everyone sucks equally. Yeah. 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 So they go on a lot more adventures in the jungle. We're not going to get into them all. This book is very, very rapid pace. And they eventually come upon a village. Candide is slightly thrown. Everyone in the village is beautiful. The livestock are huge and healthy. And children are playing in the streets with these really weird marbles. Candide goes over and he picks up a handful of these marbles and discovers that they're all precious jewels and lumps of gold. The marvels are the marbles. What, what's that? Sort of rhymes. Kinda. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't Daniel doing a good job, everybody? Thank you. The roads are paved with jewels and the futuristic carriages are pulled along them by big red sheep. <laughs> Candide thinks that these people must be like the kings of the neighbourhood. Actually, it's just, well, they're just some... Well, just ignore me. So they go into this place. Candide thinks it's a palace. It turns out it's just an inn. The waiters, they're all dressed in gold cloth. They serve elaborate meals on crystal plates. That's nice, isn't it? It's, it's like, like an ashtray, I'm imagining. This is the meal we get. This is a pretty good one. Mm-hmm. We've, not had, we've not had many meals for a while, but this makes up for it. Four dishes of soup. Go, and this, this is my translation as well. You won't get this in the normal books. <laughs> Four dishes of soup. It's because it's wrong. More dishes of... No. Four dishes of soup garnished with parrots. A boiled condor weighing 200 pounds. Two roast monkeys of excellent flavour. Maybe it's the same monkeys. Who knows? (laughs) One plate of 300 hummingbirds and another of 600 hummingbirds. And it's interesting here because the first lot, Voltaire writes colibri and the second time he writes oiseau mouche. The French have two words for hummingbird. Such that's a, pretty such cool. a rich language. Oh, Why is that mouche is horrible though? Because that's fly bird. So they have exquisite ragu and delicious pastries, and it's all washed down with liqueurs made with sugar cane. They even try and ask for the bill, and the waiters are all like, ha ha ha, <laughs> that's ridiculous. We don't accept payment. It's all covered by the state, and also we wouldn't accept that gold anyway, because that's just useless. That's just rocks and shit for us. It's a good bit. So it turns out they've discovered the fabled world of El Dorado. (gasps) And everyone's incredibly hospitable and everything is perfect and abundant. People live to 200 years old and their only religion is to give thanks to God and never to pray to him because they have everything they need. Voltaire alert. Deism. Yeah, they don't have any organized religion. They just believe in God. That's (laughs) that's what 18th century sort of enlightenment people were like. They're like, yeah, of course I believe in God. I'm very spiritual, but I just don't like priests mucking it up. I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual. This is the perfect part of the world that Dr. Pangloss told them must exist. And the people of El Dorado are aware of colonialism happening, but they're not worried. Quote, the inaccessible rocks and precipices with which our country is surrounded on all sides has protected us so far from the rapacious fury of the people of Europe, who have an unaccountable fondness for the pebbles and dirt of our land, mm. for the sake of which they would murder us all to the very last man. Classic 18th century thing, the little secret c- country bounded by mountains. Oh, Robding Nag, Rasselas, that place, Ethiopia, where Rasselas lives. 
Wakanda. Yeah. So Candide and Cacambo are taken to meet the king, and they become chummy, and they spend a month there learning all the ways of El Dorado. But the place is so perfect that Candide grows bored. And besides, Cunegonda's over in fiancé escrow back in Buenos Aires, and I'm sure she's definitely being faithful to him and waiting. Whoa. And he also is like, we could be really rich if we left here with, uh, with all the jewels. I, lo- I, mean, I love that cynicism, like, I don't want Utopia, I want to lord it over people. The king thinks Candide is an idiot for wanting to leave such a perfect place, but, you know, we're not holding you hostage here, buddy, okay. So they give them a bunch of the giant red sheep and some of these useless rocks, and they help Candide and Cacambo over their inaccessible mountains. And they head back to Buenos Aires to rescue Cunegonde from the lustful governor. Candide's very like, oh, I hope nothing's happened in my, like, what, three-year absence or something. <laughs> So the pair and their train of 20 jewel-carrying sheep start traveling well, but soon the sheep start dropping off, don't they? They start falling in swamps, some of them expire in deserts, a few fall off cliffs. <laughs> this is just, you like that, do you? No, this is just, it's a very, um, I don't know, this is like a very Acme cartoon. It's very, this is what, oh. oh it's a crazy book. It, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's very cartoony. That's yeah. casting, Bugs Bunny, as, Bugs Bunny would not be Candide. Who would be? Falcon Legon is Pangloss. We can save this for later. Oh, I like that. No, no, no. We'll do that now because that's not going to be my casting. But actually, this would make... You know how, like, when they did the um, the Wagner... Oh, yeah. What's Opera bu- Doc? Yeah, like... Elmer Fudd is Candide. And Bugs Bunny dressed as a girl is Kunigonda leading him around. Yeah. Elmer Fudd's... Oh, there we go. Oh, that's actually a better casting idea. Bugs than, like, Bunny kisses <laughs> Candide. My dream. Okay. What the hell is that knocking? Is anybody there? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so, soon they only have two sheep left. Uh, but Candide's like, well, although wealth is perishable, my love for Cunegonde, it's immortal. So it's fine. Barf. Well, quite. So, <laughs> they eventually arrive in the Dutch colony of Suriname, where surnames come from. There they encounter a black man in a miserable state is anyone in a good state in this book? Some are in better than this. Let's hear. He's got one leg, one hand, and he's wearing rags. So help me God, if this is Dr. Pangloss losing more body parts. <laughs> What's he doing here? Well, it's all perfectly normal. Wait, hold on. They're nailing Jesus to the cross next door. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, I think we're probably good to go. Right. The guy's like, Candy's like, God, what's happened to you? And he's like, oh, this is all perfectly normal. Quote, we get one pair of canvas shorts every six months. And when we work on the sugar plantations, sometimes your master's cut off your hands. When we try to escape, our master's cut off one of our legs. So that's, and just this is the, the price you pay for sugar in Europe. So slavery is being called out as bad. You're not going to get a lot of pushback from me, Voltaire. Yep, I agree with you. Candy does again like, oh. How could Pangloss be saying that we live in the best of all possible worlds when there's slavery? And so, anyway, they try and get a boat back to Buenos Aires, but the Spanish sailors are like, there is no way I will take you back because the governor's favorite mistress is Cunegonde and I, I cannot let you steal her. So it, this is news to Candide that Cunegonde is the governor's mistress. But he's like, here's my plan. I'm going to send Kukanga with some of my millions that I've got from El Dorado to go and rescue Kunigon and like bribe the governor. The governor. And the reason he's sending Kakambo is because Kakambo isn't wanted by the Inquisition for the Archbishop's murder. Yeah. So don't forget that this whole time, like they have a warrant out on K- 
Candide. Candide's like, meanwhile, I'll return to Europe by myself and, you know, we'll all organize to meet in Venice. Yeah, Venice, where the Catholic Church will never f***ing catch up with you. A Dutch captain manages to haggle Candide up to a really extortionate price for the journey and then sails off with all his stuff, including his remaining two sheep, before Candide can actually get on the boat. He's been swindled. Candide, he eventually gets passage on a French ship to Bordeaux. For some reason, he's like, as a bonus, I'm going to pay for the transit of the most miserable person in Suriname. So loads of people come and share their horrible life stories with him. It's, it's a contest to see who can be Suriname's most unemployable weirdo. Why don't I live in Suriname? I'd get a free trip to Bordeaux. <laughs> loads of people tell their horrible life stories, and Candide is again, you know, further becoming jaded about optimism. But then he settles on a philosopher, quote-unquote, called Martin, who's been abandoned and beaten by his own family. So, I'm sorry, he walked up to this town and saw this miserable enslaved man who's missing an arm and a leg and gets beaten every day, and he chooses a fucking philosopher who's just, what, Graham Linehan by his family? <laughs> Graham, yeah. Just, okay, let's, uh, you know who I want who suffers the most? A divorced guy. Come the fuck gone. I say this, philosophers don't have very good job security. <laughs> Slaves. Daniel Jenkins Smith. What, we're now to that, yeah, that joke? Daniel, that's a, that's an edgy one. It's so secure, you're actually secured in place. So they get on the ship to Bordeaux. He and the philosopher Martin, they start palling around and talking philosophy. Nice. Martin is a super pessimist, so the two of them debate all the way back to Europe, with basically no resolution. Candide is horrified by this, but then they watch a big sea battle together and Candide starts to come around to Martin's way of thinking. This pessimistic turn doesn't last long though. Turns out that the ship that gets defeated, that belonged to that Dutch swindler from earlier. Hooray. Candide sees one of his red sheep, presumed stolen, jump overboard and swim back to him. Oh. That would be such a moving bit in the film. Oh, quote, since I have found you again, I might also regain my Cunegonde. That's how it works. So, yeah, so he now, luckily, has some money left. Martin, the philosopher, explains that the whole world was made for misery. Just as it's in a hawk's nature to kill pigeons, so too are humans always liars, cheats, traitors, ingrates, brigands, drunkards, thieves, cowards, envious, feeble, gluttonous, avaricious, ambitious, bloody, libelous, debauched, fanatical, hypocritical, and foolish. Got my new Twitter bio. <laughs> so, they get into Bordeaux. Candide sells his sheep and his remaining jewels with a view to going to Venice. He sells the sheep to the Academy of Sciences, doesn't he? And they do a big, there's all funny stuff about that. We're not gonna get into that. So he and Martin make a detour to Paris, because I suppose you might while you're in the area, might, might as well. And he, he really falls in love with high society there and is really stupid and obvious about how much money he has. So soon, like, everyone's on the make. Uh, yeah. it's, it's Grift City. If you will. I won't. I said it, what? Keep going. Okay, yeah, sorry. I'm <laughs> <laughs> begging your pardon. He gets sort of like Paris syndrome, doesn't he, after a while. He's all exhausted and everything. It's all shallow and salacious. He gets ill. And, oh, this is a big moment for Candide. He also finally loses his virginity to Ooh. a hot gold digging marquise. And at first he feels kind of guilty about sleeping with someone other than Cunegonde, but he gets over it real fast. <laughs> Just in this great side quest we call puberty. Oh, how old is Candide, do you think? I don't know. Okay. I, I assumed when he got kicked out, he was probably like 14 or 15. 
Because they, they sell them as, like, very much children. Yeah, I suppose. For some reason, I always imagine him in his 20s. But I, I... Well, we don't know how much time is... I mean, he's been to South America and back and all through the jungle and God knows what. He must be late teens, early 20s. Okay. So, anyway, they leave Paris... They make a stopover in England for some reason. Voltaire doesn't really have a lot to say about the English. And I was thinking, if we're comparing this to... Wilde. Yeah, to Oscar Wilde, as we have been. It's funny that we're only getting a Lord Henry Wottonism, a little, like, one of his little banter quotes in a different episode. But he says, the only thing worse being talked about is not being talked about. Indeed. And I feel a little bit like that's Voltaire's ultimate dig to the English. That's true. I will also add, however, that Voltaire did write a whole book about being in England. Okay. Well, carry on then. Extremely f*** you to me, that's me told. Finally, Candide and Martin arrive in Venice, but Cacambo and Cunegonde aren't there. And Martin's like, oh, Cacambo obviously kept Cunegonde for himself. Forget them. Have they betrayed him? He doesn't know. He's brooding, sadly, moodily by the canals. Kind of like you in Birmingham every damn day. Oh, yes. But then Candide runs into a familiar face. Paquette, the serving girl. So Candide's like, you look great. Didn't you give Dr. Pangloss the most horrific case of the clap a while back? Is the clap syphilis? I'm not sure. Why are you so bright-eyed and plump of fetlock? And Paquette says, well, yes, I did have syphilis, but I was cured. And then she tells us her own very long series of adventures since she last saw Candide. Boring. And I uh, am not no. about to discuss this now at the 11th fucking hour, let me tell you. They hear of a man in Venice who has never known a single moment of sorrow in his life. And Martin the Pessimist is like, I want to meet this guy. Yeah, this I gotta see. I'll give him sorrow. <laughs> I'm glad we've also completely forgotten about Cunegonde and Cacambo, who have just disappeared into thin air and have probably been abducted by the 18th century equivalent of long-haul truckers. They go meet the man who has never known a day of sorrow, and they pal around with him, but his life is very weird. Lord Poco Carante is his name. Oh, I'm sorry, is that important? I think it means something in Italian that is to do with his condition. Oh. Caring. Cares little. So because he wants for nothing, he takes pleasure in nothing, which is kind of the exact opposite of the El Dorado people. I thought that was a weird, like, yes. we have two pe people Roots. here yeah. who just want for nothing. And yet they have different results. Meanwhile, Kakambo and Kunagonda are still missing. They're being tortured in a serial killer's shipping container by now, while Candide is froggering his dumbass <laughs> around Europe in his fucking gap year. Candide and Martin and Paquette, they're dining in Venice and having a wonderful time, and then one day, a bedraggled Kakambo stumbles into the restaurant where Candide is eating, Ooh. and he tells them, Kunagonda, she's in Constantinople. <laughs> Jesus Christ, this... this these side quests need yeah. to end. This, you know, this is the princess is always in another tower. Oh isn't yes, it? yeah. Also, curse sounds automatically funny. Kakambo says Kunigondas in Constantinople. I'm laughing my head off <laughs> over here. I have a question about that in the analysis. Okay. So after Kakambo bought Kunigonda from the governor in Buenos Aires, like that that plan went through okay. Oh good. They boarded a ship exactly like Candy told them to do. But it instantly got captured by pirates who stole all the rest of their money and sold them both into slavery. Kakambo got sold to a deposed sultan, and Kunigonda and the old lady got sold to a nobleman named Ragotsky. You think it's going to be for the sex stuff, but it's not. Here's a bombshell for you, Candide. Kunigonda has, in the meantime, somehow turned incredibly ugly, and all she's good for is washing dishes. 
Candide says he doesn't care if she's ugly or not, but he does care deep down. It's not that thinly veiled. No, as you don't want Kunigon to be. Give <laughs> 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 yourself up. <laughs> uh, that, was, that was quick. That was good. What with me? The veiled thing. So the galley arrives. They get on a galley. Yeah. The galley arrives at Constantinople. <laughs> And you look at Galley Kitchen like that, but it's a boat. And Candide pays for Cacambo's freedom. He then notices that two of the ship's slave oarsmen are... Who do you think they are? I'm not going to let you guess. They're not those two monkeys. They're Pangos and Kunigon's brother. So oh. they're, they're down in the belly of the ship rowing it. What in the days of our lives plotline is this bullshit? No, they are, they are both extremely dead. We saw both of them die with our own eyes. No, no, Not no. Not on screen. No, no. They tell us what happened. So, Kunigon's brother, he was all right. He goes back to Europe. He got a new job with the French ambassador in Constantinople. He bathed with a young Muslim man while he was there. You're not meant to do that, apparently. And he got enslaved. Queer reading, I guess? Just two blokes having a nice bath. There's nothing funny about that. <laughs> Listeners, if you want to have a bath with me, that's fine. There's nothing funny about it. And you're going to get offers for that. Okay. As long as I don't have to sit on the tap end. Um, <laughs> so Pangos, if you will recall, listeners, was hanged at the Auto de Fe. But he's like, oh, I actually was all right. I survived it. But I was... What? No, I'm just laughing at the ridiculous silly, it? Yeah, yeah, it is silly. But he's like, I was presumed dead. So I got sold to a surgeon, you know, for a bit of dissection stuff. You know, when the surgeon did started the dissection, Pangloss woke up and was, you know, not pleased. Imagine that. This is Ripley's Believe It or Not, the book. I don't know what that is. Pangloss has his own series of adventures. It doesn't matter. The point is he got enslaved and he ended up rowing on the galley next to the brother who is not named Maximilian. And so, my dear Pangloss, Candide says, when you were being hanged, dissected, whipped, and rowing on board the galley, did you always think everything was for the best? And Pangloss is like, well, I can't go back on myself, you know, <laughs> it'd be a bit embarrassing, wouldn't it? <laughs> anyway, Leibniz's metaphysics are so good that his worldview has to be true. It's a kind of, you know, <laughs> gentleman, it works in practice, but does it work in theory type situation, <laughs> isn't it? So yeah, there you go. They're all, all the gangs back together. Oh, hooray! Except poor Kunagonda and the old lady. Yeah. They finally get to Constantinople, and luckily enough, they immediately run into Kunagonda and the old lady. Candide blanches when he sees her. Quote, His fair Kunagonda, all sunburnt, with bloodshot eyes, a withered neck, her face wrinkled, and her arms red and scaly. No, 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 no. No. Your translation is not up to snuff. Oh, uh Let's see here. He's doing this in real time, people. I'm doing it in real time. Yeah, this is it. Here we go. This is the bit. La gorge sèche. Dried neck. That literally means dried neck. It's a euphemism for saggy breasts. So can we please have that? Oh, and her tits have gone to hell as well. Yes, pendulous. Thank you. Because Candide is a man of his word, he decides to buy Kunigonda's freedom and to still be with her. But her dickbag brother, who is not named Maximilian, he's like... Uh, raise your credit score, bitch. My sister's a high-ranking lady. Candide slightly feels like he's been saved by the bell, but also a little bit incensed. He just bought this dude's freedom, and he has the audacity to say that Candide's not good enough to marry his sister. If you can't do something like that, what's the point of being an aristocrat? You know what I mean? Like... So Candide decides to sell the brother back into slavery. That's the fun slavery. That's the one in the med. 
there's the non-fun one, that's the one in the Atlantic. That's so, what I'm learning from 18th century <laughs> literature. And they don't bother to tell Kunaganda about it, so I guess she just thinks her brother, like, Irish goodbyes out of her life. They all buy a little farm together with the very last of Candide's money, and it sounds quite utopian, except they're broke. Quote, he had nothing else left but his little farm. His wife, every day growing more and more ugly, became headstrong and insupportable. The old woman was infirm and more ill-natured than even Cunegonde. <laughs> and then we learn Cacambo becomes really worn down by the hard labor of being a farmhand and curses his life. Meanwhile, quote, Pangloss was in despair at being unable to make a name for himself at any of the German universities. Get your thumb out and get to work on that damn farm, Pangloss. I thought you were going to say monograph. Only Martin, the philosopher, the pessimist, is convinced that things would be just as bad anywhere else, so he bears up this miserable life with patience. So they decide to consult the wisest man in the area, a great philosopher. A dervish, isn't he? And they ask him why man was put on this earth if it was just to suffer. The philosopher comes in in the 11th hour, as the hero of the story. It whirls in. Tells them all to just shut up, to stop stressing about philosophy so much, and just, like, go eat their garden or do something useful. And he slams the door in their face. And Candide and Pangloss and Martin all go, yeah, all right. Why, what? Yes, (laughs) that just might work. That's crazy enough to work. So they go and do that, and once they all stop thinking so much, the world gets a lot more bearable. Candide grows a good enough crop. Cunegonde, though still ugly, discovers she's actually really good at making pastry. Nice. The old woman has an okay time doing everyone's laundry. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So I'm just commentating on it as it goes. Keep going. This is like the end of one of those American college films. They're all dancing around, and at the bottom it's like... Yeah. <laughs> Kunigan got over uh, years of trauma and became pretty good. Pastry chef. Making <laughs> a burrock. Pangloss is like, well, things really happen for the best because we're all quite happy in the garden now. And then Candide is like, yeah, well, that's true, but we've got to do some gardening. That's the end, isn't it? And that's it. That's the end. And I want a post credit scene where the Inquisition actually catches up with them, the people making the biggest fucking splash in Europe and throwing all their money around. The end question mark would you like some casting i sure would we already had actually the quite good casting the, the books, looney tunes one. the looney tunes one but i was thinking in terms of a, like a live action thing it needs to be something light and breezy that still can like pack a punch and have a real commentary this is a taika waititi film and you have taika as dr pangloss you get scarlett johansson as kunaganda Matt Berry is the governor of Buenos Aires. I can imagine him playing quite a few roles. I think he might be in an Alec Guinness position. I have like no problem with Carnet. that. I have no problem with mm, that. I'm the Grand Inquisitor. Oh, yeah. Mm, I'm the governor of Buenos Aires. He could play Don Isacar. He could play... Yeah. Re- I'm the king of El Dorado. And then, as Candide, we need a short king who's sweet and innocent looking, but who wouldn't annoy the shit out of you for being so sweet and innocent. Daniel Radcliffe. I think I prefer Donald Glover. Now for our segment, Bad Good Reads Reviews. The ending is so funny. Like, how does Kunagonda keep getting uglier? What does that even mean? One star. Crock of shit. <laughs> One star. And then, Candide is a crazy man. <laughs> Two stars. <laughs> what? Pretty good. Yeah. Okay, let's do some analysis. 
form? Mm -hmm. The form of the text. What was it? Picaresque, we've already talked about it, but it's really extreme, isn't it? Like, the normal picaresque, like the kind of original Spanish classic picaresque is about the kind of highs and lows of a social world, you know, so a guy just kind of hangs around with beggars and aristocrats. This is so extreme, isn't it? The heights of joy in the form of El Dorado and total misery, like people having their mm -hmm. asses mutilated and stuff. We've got complete outlandishness, like the monkey women, and then just humdrummery, the farm. Like, it's it's trying to encompass the whole globe and all experience, isn't it, in this really kind of cartoony way. But they're all given equal weight. There there are very few episodes that are given more time Well, that's than the others. point. That's the point of the yeah. picaresque, isn't it? Yeah. That having aristocrats and pe beggars each get an episode kind of makes them all equivalent. And the same here. It's almost like Voltaire is making suffering and happiness all kind of blend into one. Yeah. kind of an equivalence created through it. So it seems like there's some kind of deeper philosophy that's not necessarily optimistic or pessimistic. It's more kind of like, it's all a big crazy thing. That kind of seems to be the thing that we take away and just like, what are you gonna do? Yeah. But also it's like bollocks, isn't it? Because um, he was writing this in his like big palace that he won from rigging the lottery and, you know, had a, had a great time. I also was wondering about just the, the pace of it. So we've talked about the waiting, yeah. and all of these episodes, you know, in the highs and lows, they're all pretty equal. But this is so breakneck, and I think like our recap is probably even enhancing that. But we're not that far off no. from like the only way I could sort of figure out how to articulate this is that this book feels like it was written in staccato. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And just like everything is so frenetic all the time and it's just on to the next thing. No, it's absurd, isn't it? It's the, the, the pacing. Yeah. Also just, it's such a short book, isn't it? For all the stuff that happens, it's like 15,000 words or something like yeah. that. It's like ridiculously short. I mean, this is one of those summaries that is almost as long as the book. Normally Probably. our summaries are about trying to cut down a lot, but here we Pretty much covered everything. Yeah, we're not. We're going to be not that far off the operetta, which is like an hour and a half. Yeah, just the yeah, the brevity of it is amazing, isn't it? But well, this is breadth to make depth, if that makes exactly. sense. Exactly, that does make sense. Yeah. Well, did you get fatigued by it? A little bit. Yeah, I was. I would rather depth than breadth. I think. Because yeah, I was thinking about like there. There's no psychology here. There's mm, no, no interiority. It's just like, and then Candy did this, or at most you'll get. Candide thought that. Yeah. So there's like no introspection, and that's because I, I know that um, in my version, the in the intro, it said Voltaire adhered to the classical notion that public self-revelation is not only in bad taste, it smacks of the obscene. In Pascal's words, the self is hateful. Despite this all being very much Voltaire's philosophy, we don't get any interiority. It's a very slippery surface. You pointed out earlier all the C names, that some of these sentences are funny just because they make a cook sound. Yeah. Why do that? Cunegonde, Candide, Cacambo, Constantinople. Pangloss. That does not have a C in it, but good good try. Do you want to try again? Paquette <laughs> has at ooh, least yeah, the sound. Secret C. Oh, <laughs> no. I don't know whether I fully subscribe to the whole cur automatically being funny. Uh, the fact that you have so many characters that start with the letter C or have C in their name. I was just thinking, like, is that a sort of universalizing thing of, like, we're all going through it, we're all kind of the same, Kunaganda, Candide, Kakambo. Yeah, maybe there is a kind of philosophical edge to it. Yeah, and a lot of other characters don't even have names, do they? Like, the yeah. old woman, and so there's this a sense of anonymity. But I suppose, again, yeah, that's what you're saying about the self. They, they are just these stock figures, they're not really meant to... Yeah, no interiority. They, yeah. yeah, they're very one-dimensional. And but that's hence okay. why it works well for like Looney Tunes because they just you can just batter these characters and you're not worried about it. It might sound like we're a little bit down on this book. I really enjoy it. It's a hell of a romp, 
And it's, it is weirdly an optimistic book, despite all of this, because as you're saying, in that sort of like Looney Tunes way, you can hurt these characters as much as possible. None of them ever lose hope. Even when they're like, oh, Candide was really down. You know he's going to yeah. bounce back up a sentence and a half later. Oh, no, it's a zany read, isn't it? It's a, well, it's yeah, a, it's, zany is a yeah. good word. It's about learning to live in the modern world, almost. There's that guy, isn't there, that historian, Reinhard Kasellek, who says that the sort of operative word of modernity is crisis, and that that started mm-hmm. in the 1750s. And yeah. Candide is, is that, in like a nutshell. It's like a manifesto of modernity. You can't go two seconds without a new crisis yeah. striking. And, it's and he's never safe or secure, yeah. And these forces colliding with each other, like, yeah. The church, but also colonialism, mm-hmm. and, you know, this, yeah. And burgeoning, like, capitalism. Exactly, yeah. 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 So, yeah, philosophy. Was Pangloss right after all? Because the book does kind of have a happy ending, doesn't it? And it does result, as Pangloss says, from all the sort of vicissitudes that they undergo. I have a hard time answering that because it's a self-contained world that mm. can end happily and does, but it's depicting, to some extent, elements of the real world that for many people end very, very unhappily. Oh, yeah. And so it's that's, that's a hard one. I'm like, the book is pessimistic about its optimism or optimistic about its... Pe- uh, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. That's even weirder, though, isn't it? Because you're right, like... Pangloss is right in the context of the book. In the, within the world of the book, Pangloss is right because the book ends with a happy ending. For some people. Yeah, well, whatever. But for most of the people that we know about. But, as you say, it's entirely constructed to be that way and it can mm-hmm. close itself in a way that ends on a happy note. So that means that, like, not only is Pangloss wrong in real life despite being right in the book, but also Voltaire's whole message seems like it's wrong too. Like, you shouldn't be optimistic because the world's shit. But also you shouldn't even not be optimistic because this book can't even tell you anything about life because yeah. thinking is a waste of your time anyway. That seems to be the... I mean, it's quite a conservative message. That was the other thing I was thinking, that you should just, you know, keep your head down, don't bother to think or question things. Just just be like, I'm all right, Jack, and work on your field. There's a bit of a kind of... I mean, I suppose, like, psychologically, that might be kind of healthy, like, just to, to not try and worry about things all the time. In, in a but world it, of chaos, like, what what are you going to do? Just keep your head down and just try to keep but, going, you know? But, yeah, that seems but, like... That's quite a conservative worldview, isn't it? I, I, I actually... I'm glad we're talking about the ending, because the ending always strikes me as tonally very, very strange. Yeah. The opposite of this is the best of all possible worlds is not, or you can't think anything at all. You could propose a different alternative without just being like you know what just don't worry your little head about it too much well martin is introduced as a kind of counterpart to pangloss mm-hmm. isn't he and i suppose the the idea there is that then we've got these two thinkers and neither of them you know you think it's a choice between pangloss and martin actually it's a choice between thinking and not thinking but it's martin comes in way too late and also a lot late, of what yeah. he says is confirmed by how horrible everything is and even at the end he's like well i'm just as happy or miserable here as i would be anywhere like he's the one who's actually satisfied no matter what yeah the rest of them have to shut off a fundamental part of themselves in order to be happy yeah so it's 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 a very odd odd ending the ending i think is the only sort of weird duff note about it it'd be better i think i can imagine a book a better book (laughs) some might say where martin and pangloss figures are in it throughout and everything that they encounter could be construed one way or the other rather than it just being unremittingly awful you could have the woman and with the, the old woman and you could be like Martin oh it's awful that her 
buttock got chopped off and Pangloss would be like that's why she had two yeah exactly yeah, yeah that would be funnier if there was that kind of constant dialogue and constant yeah. interpretation but you don't really get that it's and more synoptic than analytic well Pangloss disappears way too early and Martin comes in way too late yeah so- and Candide doesn't dwell on the best of all possible world line as much as you'll think whenever you read this because it's not the first time I've read mm-hmm. this unlike some of the books on the list yeah. You always think, oh, every chapter's got him going like, well, but it's for the best, it's for the best, but it's not, it doesn't actually come up that much, does it? And no, it doesn't come up that much, and he doesn't interrogate it beyond that. He's a bit like Robinson Crusoe, where when anyone pushes back on his philosophy, he's like, I'm just a man of action, I'm not really that much of a thinker. Yeah. So he's sort of left to his own devices. That's why this ending is weird to me, where it's like, well, don't think too hard, Candide. I'm like, Candide hasn't thought very much during the whole book. No, yeah. So here's some advice. Yep. If you have a slightly older text, and it's one that people talk about as a sort of classic, try to pare down the plot to its basic building blocks and think about more modern films or books that follow the same rough steps. So in this, it's sort of a lucky idiot bumbles his way across the world in pursuit of a beautiful slut. That's Forrest Gump. That's Joe Dirt. It's a little bit Midnight in Paris. It's a little bit Eat, Pray, Love. It's very much Fritz the Cat. I just, I, I was thinking about this. Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon, exactly. Yeah, so it's like, why do we keep coming back to these same plots? Are these updated versions doing anything new or better? So, should we have our clue to the next episode? No. <laughs> That's just a, just a really funny joke. Yes, please. <laughs> Too bad. You can't have it. What? I'll only give you this clue once I'm done making this shirt. Right, so just by way of an update, we are going to go on a break after this for for just one session. I'm really sorry about that. My ass is going to be in France when we would normally be recording. I apologize for that. We'll be back soon. Please write into our email or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Uh, You can go on our website if you want to make a request and don't want to do it directly through email. We have a contact form there. We're also on TikTok and Instagram at Save Me From My Shelf. Subscribe, please. We're begging you. Just, it takes a second, click a button. It makes actually quite a bit of difference. Yes. And helps us keep doing this. It's really true. You want to say goodbye? Or do you want to curl up and have a nap? Yeah, see ya. See you, everyone, the next, on the next merry adventure, eh? All right. Thanks, everybody. See you soon. Bye-bye. Love you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not, I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you.